Hi everyone, welcome to episode number 22 of the Slow Pink Society podcast. As always, I'm Fabian here with Paul. Hey Paul. Ice cream is my new hobby. It is mine too. And <laughs> and today we'll be talking about Major Taylor. So this is a historical figure, or athlete, that most of you may, may not have heard of. So I'm sure some of you have. And we'll be talking more about this person. Um, we've received pretty good feedback on our our record episode. People seem to like to learn more about the history of track cycling and so on. But if you want to hear more about my vaccination or my new Garmin or a fixed gear bike purposely built for go-kart racing, then you should definitely check out the pre-show. You can access the extended conversation at patreon.com slash slowspinsocietypodcast or by subscribing directly on Apple Podcasts since they now allow creators like us to set up subscription systems for you to enjoy more of our content. But more on that later. That intro is more and more mouthful, huh? Yeah. Like, <laughs> it was good. <laughs> I was like running out of breath at the end. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Uh, grab your bowls because that one is a big one. And the story of Major Taylor is... Well, it is a big story. It is a sad story. Uh, when I made research and wrote that entire thing, uh, I cried a few times because... The man had not an easy life, and we're going to go through it. It's a little bit of a different episode. Uh, we're going to read a bunch of stuff, but I feel like, yeah, you guys are going to enjoy it. Definitely. So, Marshall Walter Taylor, a.k.a. Major Taylor, was born in November 26, 1878, in Indianapolis. In a family of eight children, his father was the son of a slave and fought in the Civil War. He was usually helping his dad from time to time, uh, who worked with a very rich family named the Southards in Indian Palace. Uh, he became really friend with Daniel, their son, uh, who was like the same age as him. And as they spent time and more and more time together, uh, they took Taylor and gave him an education that his family couldn't afford. This, despite his skin color, even if sometimes he was not even allowed to play with the other white boys. And remember, we are in 1878, 18, like the 1880s, and being a black man or a black kid in America at that time was not easy thing. Marshall is now 12, and the Sorcerers are moving to Chicago. Even if they were happy to take him with them, uh, he decided to stay in Indianapolis, mostly because his mom refused to let him go, she wouldn't part with his baby. And just like that, he went from like a millionaire boy with like access to education, tutoring and everything, to basically living on the street again. But before the Sorcerers left, uh, they gifted him a bike. And yeah, this is how Major got first introduced to cycling, I guess. And yeah, so the, the Southards, the family, they gave him a bicycle. And this is, as Paul said, his introduction to it, but also gives him like a lifeline in life, a way to like progress his life and make a living out of it. Because 
Afterwards, he found a job delivering newspapers on his bike. But in the meantime, he was also doing tricks with his bike for fun. And in 1892, he became so good doing tricks with his bike that Tom Hay, a local bicycle shop owner, decided to pay him to do stunts in front of his shop for six bucks a week, like to attract more customers and so on, and you know, have like entertainment. So the bike that he was gifted by the Southart family allowed him to make a living out of it and earn some money. And this was in a time when there were not that many opportunities for people like him, black people, to be more specific. Um, the bike shop owner, Tom Hay, he was also, ga also gave him another bicycle worth $35. So $35 in 1880 is a significant amount now. Yeah. Uh, like for sure. It's, a, it's, it's not like a, it's not like a, like some trash bike. So the guy gave him a nice bike and yeah. Um, Marshall Taylor spent his days doing tricks in front of the shop on this bike. And that's how he got his name, Major Taylor, because he was doing these tricks wearing a military uniform. And that name has stuck up to now as well. Tom Hay, so the bicycle shop owner, had another idea to promote the shop. So he decided to enter Major Taylor into a 10-mile bike race because he saw how, how um, talented the kid was. And Taylor was absolutely terrified of this idea. Well, as he should be, it's his first race, right? I think anyone would be. But... Yeah. Yeah, and especially as a black kid, he's never been to a bike race or anything before. But Tom Hay basically told him to go as far as he could and come back when he was tired or just not feeling like doing it anymore. Yeah, he said quote like, Oh yeah, you can just do like a mile or two and then if you're tired just come back. You just need to make like a little bit of advertising for the shop. Yeah, so it was supposed to be like, oh, look at this black kid cycling in, in this in this white person sport, basically, right? Yeah. And 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 then we, well, like Major Taylor or Taylor or Marshall or however you want to call him went along with it, of course, because it's, it's his boss. So he went up to the starting line and then just pedaled as hard as he could, like going to like a madman from point to point, and he just kept going and going, and he ended up finishing six six seconds ahead of everyone else, and. How old was he here? He was like 13 years old here. And he finished six seconds ahead of everyone else. And yeah. that's what we now know as like the, the grand Major Taylor story. This is like the start of his entire career as a cyclist. Yeah. So yeah, at the age of 13, he started cycling, cycling or racing bikes across the Midwest of the US. And he started winning a lot of races. And this all because of Tom Hay, basically, and the bike. Or if you want to go even further back, because of the bike from the Southards. Yeah, and... he even got mentioned in the New York Times. Yeah. and But they didn't mention neither his age, neither his skin color. Yeah, that's... Ba basically, they were saying like, oh, there's that kid that is winning a lot. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, and like with a name like Marshall Taylor, uh, if you don't have a picture or know the skin color, 99% of people would likely assume that he's white, right? Yeah. And I think that's also what they would want, or else they would get probably get lots of backlash for like depicting or writing about a black guy in the newspaper back then. So, of course, at 13, he won a bunch of races in the Midwest, and race promoters, so the people that set up these races and find talent and stuff, they... They allowed him to take part in some of these races, but he was not allowed to enter a cycling club because those were back then just reserved for white people, unfortunately, of course. 
and white cyclists, they were not welcoming this young black racer. Maybe because he's better than them and they knew that, or because he's black. But of course, it's likely just both of it. And yeah, that year, at the age of 13, he met Louis Munger, nicknamed Birdie, who was a penny farthing race racer. So penny farthing, those are the, the, the bikes with the massive front wheel and the tiny back wheel. And back then, they used to race on those as well. And Louis Munger, sorry, Louis Munger was the owner of Worcester Cycle Manufacturing Company. So he was able to make bikes for him and his friends and sell them, of course. And these two, they became very good friends very quickly. And Birdie hired Marshall to do various jobs, including working in the factory or training high school cyclists to promote Birdie's racing bikes. So again, finds another job in the bicycle industry. And this gives him like the opportunity to earn money and just make something of himself in a time when it was more or less, when more or less everyone was against him, of course except yeah. for these few people that really saw the talent in him and saw him as a as a person. Yeah, it was back then Birdie was one of the few white dudes that would see Taylor as someone that could help him but not in the way of making him money. Of course, Taylor was racing on Birdie's bikes uh, that he was manufacturing. Uh, and of course, that was great advertisement. But you need to remember that also for a lot of people, seeing a black dude racing on, well, a birdie bike was the meaning that, oh, I'm not going to buy that bike. I mean, look at it. Like there's a black man riding on that bike. I can't bike buy the yeah. same bike, right? So just by association, people wouldn't want to be known as having the same bike as a black person for example yeah i mean like nowadays the same thing with like i don't know you could say gucci and like like soundcloud rappers right like gucci like kind of lost its elite status because of all of these trashy people wearing it all the time and the same thing with the bikes back then if you see a black guy with a birdie bike you're gonna be like oh fuck birdie bikes i don't want to be known as having a cheap bike or something like that yeah but, Before yeah. it was like pure racism. Now it's more like social status and everything. Yeah. Back then it was like pure straight up racism. Yeah. So Birdie took the risk and because he had faith in Marshall and he wanted Marshall to race on his bikes and he, he believed that Marshall could like promote these bikes to others, like high school cyclists and stuff. And later on, Taylor decided he wanted to become a cyclist, like, like even more full-time pro cyclist. And Birdie became his coach. So this is like the start of the, the full like professional relationship pretty much. And in yeah. 19, in 1893, three, sorry, the Great Depression hit and jobs became very scarce around the country. It was hard to find a meaningful job for, for anyone, but especially for black people who were like segregated and limited to certain types of jobs. So these people, he had it even, even more uh, difficult than others. And white governing bodies around the country were privileging white athletes for sport competitions rather than the black uh, athletes that were wanting to compete as well. And a great, great example of this is horse racing. Greatest jockeys at the time were black, like, like the most skilled, the most talented, whatever. But in yeah, they were dominating the sport at the time. Yeah. So they were just the best and they happened to be black. But in 1893, they either lost their job or the spot or had to go overseas. And these were just, so then the country was left with white jockeys, even though they were like 
less skilled than the black ones. Not as good, yeah. Yeah, and just because of skin color and the time, of course. So, and the bicycle governing body at the time, the League of American Wheelmen or LAW, tried as hard as they could to limit the infiltration of Ameri- African Americans in our into our sport, as they say. So they really believe like that cycling was meant for white people only, and that the black people, such as Marshall Taylor, were infiltrating it like a pest or something like that. And they were doing everything they could to stop this from happening. So this was more because of race than because if they were scared of his skill or anything. It was just purely they wanted to keep the sport white. Yeah. And yeah, it's ridiculous because you would think that a cycling body like that would be like happy to find such a great talent or something. But some things had priority back then. Yeah. It was one of the first cycling body like way before the UCI. Yeah. And at first, it was really like, we don't want black people into our sport. But later, it really became like, no, no, like black people are actually too strong, but without ever admitting it as a fact, you know? Yeah. Like, oh, no, we just don't want to race with black people. But they were thinking like, oh, they are just way above our league. Yeah, so... So they did everything they could to keep people like Marshall Taylor and Marshall Taylor out of the sport by seeing him win and be skilled and talented. And in Louisville, Colonel Watts was really against black people in cycling. He was trying to do as much as he could to prevent them from entering the cycling field as well. And he ran for mayor of Louisville under the slogan of no discrimination against wheelmen. And Wheelmen, so cyclists, he believed to be white. So he believed that allowing black people into cycling was discrimination against wheelmen, the real white cyclists. Yeah, so like, no discrimination against wheelsmen, but please only white people. Yeah. Which is the dumbest thing ever. Yeah, so he did not consider black people cycling as as wheelmen, as he would with white people cycling. Yeah. Yeah, so his entire bid for for being mayor was under that slogan all about keeping black people outside of cycling just insane um yeah so he wanted cyclists and bicycle racing to be accepted as a more legit and organized sport but specifically only for white people and so he was definitely definitely not happy with uh people like major taylor winning races across the midwest so later that year, he also held a wheelman's con- convention in Kentucky and asked for people to vote to expel all black cyclists across the country from every race. And of course, he won 127 votes against 54. But a delegation from Massachusetts blocked the vote at the last minute. And later we'll talk more about this, but Massachusetts at that time was a more tolerant place uh, for black people and compared to the rest of the country, especially places like Kentucky. Yeah. So from 1893 on, Taylor started to race more seriously, and he was especially good in one-mile races. So these are like the typical... They still happen nowadays as well in the velodrome, because, yeah, for sprinters especially. But he won his first official race at an amateur event in in Indianapolis. It was a 10-mile race, so it's quite a bit longer. And he received a 50-second head start because of his young age. 14 years old. So because he was 14, he received a 50-second handicap. And he won against racers who were 
five, six, seven, eight, nine years older than him. Yeah, they were basically all in their twenties. Yeah, so yeah. they had like, they were like twice his size, they had more muscles, they had more speed, they had nicer bikes, maybe, etc. Yeah. And he still won. Just remember that. So ten miles at sixteen kilometers, and they were on bikes that have nothing to do with today's bikes, right? They were like piece of. It was like really bad tubing and really bad wheels everything was really rigid and roads were like gravel basically <laughs> um and yeah it was like it was a different time so 16 kilometer right now can feel like something that is pretty short but at the time it was like it was a big race but even, yeah yeah no yeah. yeah and i was just gonna say that even like 16k is pretty is for sprinter, I think it's pretty pretty big deal if he's used is, to yeah. to to one mile only. Yeah. Well, you have to reproduce the same effort sixteen times. So. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. So his first significant race was a seventy-five miles, so one hundred and twenty kilometer road race from Indianapolis to Matthews, Indiana. So Taylor and his coach Birdie feared that white racers would refuse to participate in the race because of Taylor's presence, basically. So they kept his participation secret until the last moment. And by the last moment, I mean Taylor was hiding behind a tree. And when the race went off, he ran to his bike, took it, and headed on to the race behind everybody else. So that's actually a real story. He was hiding behind a tree to be able to compete, which is crazy. So during that race, white racers, like they, of course, like started noticing that there were a black guy behind them and they started throwing every racist insult possible at him and even tried to run him off the road and knock him off his bikes. At some point during the middle of the race, uh, Taylor realized that he was in the middle of the countryside alone with a bunch of white dudes trying to hurt him. At that point, if someone's kill you in the Midwest and in the middle of nowhere and you're black, nobody would know or nobody would care. So he was in actual real danger. You know, and he did what he thought was best, and he just started pedaling more and more faster and faster, going through the field uh, and going in front of everyone else. And he was just like going crazy, like going as fast as he could. 25 miles before the end of the race, it started pouring rain. And as I, was, as I was saying before, roads back then was dirt roads. That was slippery, really hard to cycle, almost impossible, really. In the end, he finished the race first because he was the only one to actually finish. That day, he went back home and has much as his mom was proud of him, she made him promise to never attend a race on a country road again. And he agreed. Which I understand because that's pretty hardcore. 
you're like in the middle of nowhere and you're like, oh yeah, those people could just kill me. A yeah. few days later, Taylor won a 10 mile black on Lee road race in Indianapolis. And that made him eligible to complete at the national black racer championship in Chicago. Later that year in 1895, he won the 10 mile championship race in Chicago by 10 length and set a new record for bike cyclist of 2732. Taylor just became the new black champion of America. So at that point, Taylor was already gaining a little bit of traction, but that was really like a little bit, you know, like when you're black, even if you're really good, people don't talk about you that much. As we said before, Indian police, he was constantly dealing with white track owners, giving him access to training only when they wanted to. And he was usually kicked off as soon as all the white racers wanted to train. It's also at this time that he became faster and faster to the point where writers started making articles about him. People knew his incredible times and for a 17 years old boy, from Indianapolis, that was amazing. But Indianapolis was still a really, really hostile place for him and his coach Bertie. So him and Bertie decided to move to Massachusetts, where people and laws were more tolerant towards black people. And as we told before, Bertie had a factory of like, like an entire factory. And he was like, oh yeah. I'm going to move the entire factory to Massachusetts so you can train better. On his last day in Indianapolis, Bertie had some friends over and one couldn't take it anymore and finally asked him like, why was he leaving a great business and a great area behind him? All of that for Taylor, all of that for, I quote, that little darky. <laughs> and he replied, quote, someday, he'll return to the city as the champion bicycle rider of America. Which was not a popular opinion, even among his friends, and Bertie lost a lot of friends that day. So when Bertie and Taylor moved to New England, he was really surprised that bicycle racers were less, way less focused on the color of his skin. One of his next big race was in New Jersey, and he was the only black participant amongst 153 other racers. In front of 20,000 people, in half a mile before the finish line, one spectator stood out of the crowd and dumped a bucket of ice water on him, making him crash. He was the only one, and another dude in front like it was like them two and the rest of the pack was behind right and that day taylor finished 23rd overall that was his last ever road race and that time he was gonna keep his promise to his mom and never leave the velodrome again over the next few years taylor took part in many events where he would either start last or race in white races, but couldn't really compete. He would do the race with the rest of the racers, but never officially since only his time was recorded. So he could be first 
at every race that would never matter because they were they would take the first white dude right they would they would only take his time not his score basically and even if he was breaking time records at the time they were never registered like at some point he broke the mile record by eight freaking seconds eight seconds hmm. as usual he was insulted by a white racer present that day and they went even against the track manager for letting him race finally he came back to indianapolis and immediately got banned upon every track in the state so he left again yeah it's ridiculous if you like i don't how can you like think of yourself as a true fan of the sport or something if you don't even record the time of someone who's really good in it just because of their skin color eight seconds that's like massive especially on one mile and yeah they they're, they're not gonna record it like oh yeah that was great it was really fast too bad i'm not gonna write it down yeah yeah, so now we are in 1896 and Taylor is 18 and officially, so like officially, officially, a professional athlete. Not only does he stand out for being black, but also for wearing the jersey with the number 13, as no one else wanted to don that number on the course. Of course, he won his first official race as a pro in Madison Square Garden in front of 5,000 person strong white audience. So that's a big deal as well. And it is. On December the 6th, Taylor started racing the six-day event on Madison Square Garden. The rule is simple in this event. You go around the track for six days, and the person who has cycled the most wins. You can rest or sleep or do whatever you want during these six days, but if you're not on the track, you can be 100% sure that others are. At the time, the six-day event at Madison Square Garden was the biggest cycling event in the world, and athletes from Europe were coming to the US just to compete in this. He was again the only black man in the field, almost 10 years younger than the rest of the pack, and as usual, almost all of his opponents were trying to take him out, both from the US and Europe of course. Like back in Indianapolis, he only had one solution, and this was simple, just go faster than the rest. This approach led him to ride 300 miles or 482 kilometers in the first 24 hours of the event. So in 24 hours he was able to cycle 300 miles just so that he could beat the rest. Yeah. On day three, he was already at 680 miles ridden, or 1,100 kilometers, and he is fighting against sleep, but everything is still kind of alright, so he decides to strap a pillow to his stem so he can rest his chest on it. So this ingenious move was copied by all other participants who saw him resting with a pillow while cycling. Marshall Taylor was sleeping maybe one hour for every eight hours of, of riding his bike. One hour for eight hours. That's that's insane. So that's like three hours per day. Eight, yeah. You're spending like eight hours on the saddle, nonstop, riding really hard. And then, so you couldn't get out of Madison Square Garden, right? So you had like a little tent in the middle of the velodrome. And yeah, you could just do a really, really big power nap for an hour and go back riding yeah it's absolutely insane and by day four of the six-day event taylor traveled 986 miles or 1600 kilometers over four days 
that's an average of 400 kilometers every single day. And at this point, he and other athletes were completely delusional and hallucinating due to the physical exhaustion and the lack of sleep and everything else that was going on in their minds. Because at this point, this was not only a physical event, but a mental one as well. And one reporter that was present that day overheard him comment, I cannot go on with safety for there is a man chasing me around the ring with a knife in his hand while he was doing micro nap against the fence. So at this point, hallucinations and delusion were taking, taking hold of him. But even these hallucinations were helping him keep going because he thought he would die at the hand of another person if he didn't, if he stopped. Yeah. And by day five, 1,269 miles or 2,042 kilometers around the track in five days. And out of the 28 cyclists that entered this race, only 14 were still going. So half the people that joined at the start already dropped out because it was too insane cycling for six days, basically nonstop. He was involved in two different crashes that day, so this is the fifth day, but he still insisted on going back on his bike and continue racing just to be the number one. His biggest struggle was to keep enough calories in his body to fuel his ride, his non-stop riding. And during pit stops, during his small breaks, he would eat two entire fried chickens, four and a half pounds of red meat, and a crazy amount of vegetables, while also drinking three complete bottles of milk. So you can only imagine the thousands and thousands of calories going in and out of his body, day in and day out, for this entire event. Finally. That's insane. Yeah. Like, just to keep eating, like, people say if you keep eating, you can keep cycling, but of course, for six days, there's, just, I guess, after a certain point, for most people, there's nothing you can do. You're just done. Yeah, and he couldn't eat on the track, no. you know? And, oh yeah, calorie bar was not a thing. No, no jails <laughs> back then. No. Finally, on day six, he finished eighth place out of 14, having ridden a total of a total distance of 1,732 miles over six days. This is 2,787 kilometers. And of course, from this massive effort, six day effort, he was suffering serious injuries and was swearing to never do another six day event ever again. First place yeah. was Teddy Hale at 1,910 miles or 3,070 kilometers. This is a total of almost 200 miles more than, than Marshall. It, it was crazy at the time. And you also need to remember that it was the 1880s. So, no, 1890s, sorry. Mm -hmm. So, the room, Madison Square Garden, was able to house up to 6,000 spectators, right? Which most of them were smoking cigarettes or cigar. And that was a closed velodrome. Yeah. So... The entire velodrome was like a giant aquarium of smoke and racers. And that was part of hallucinations. And like, it was, it was like one of the hard parts that racers were constantly breathing that smoke and they had like, their eyes were completely dry. Their lungs were destroyed. And, yeah. The six days of Madison Square Garden were an insane event. And fun fact, after six days, they actually called out the race early 
but only two hours early. Oh my god. Because they thought like, oh, that's too insane. We need to stop this. But there was only like two hours before the official end. <laughs> like if you compare this to like nowadays, like back then it was like, oh, okay, I'm gonna sleep for one hour and cycle for eight hours while cycling in this velodrome filled with smoke and, and, and people trying to kill me. And nowadays cyclists are like, oh no, I cannot cycle. I forgot my chamois cream. I cannot go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a massive, yeah. But I guess that's what separates people like the best from everyone else, right? They just do yeah. it, whatever they do. I mean, in this case, he was the eighth place, but you know I, what mean, I mean, but the willpower, you know? Yeah. So after this event, Taylor got, of course, a lot of attention and the press and to some small extent, part of the population became more flexible towards black skinned people thanks to Major Taylor. But after all these efforts, the manufacturers didn't know if sponsoring him was a good move or something that could cost them clients who don't want to be attached to the image of a black man riding a bike. So they just backed out and waited and Taylor continued to ride birdies bikes. We are now in 1897 and bicycle racing was the number one sports in America and people were paying to see Taylor's race. Uh, he had like a huge fan following and he had his mind now set on being the American sprint champion. Not only the black American, but the overall American sprint champion. So he started doing more race to be in the top riders. And if you're in the top riders, of course, you have the right to participate in like bigger event, like, for example, the, the final of uh, the American sprint. Uh, but as much as the crowd loved him, racers hated him more and more. And more than once, they worked together against Taylor, usually ending up in Taylor crashing badly on the track. Racers were threatening him in the locker room that if he raced, like they would, they would kill him. And Taylor became terrified of going on the track again. That time, he purposely finished last, but his nerves was on the edge. And that year in the newspaper, you could read the headline, Major Taylor in Danger. In another race, Taylor finished second, and the guy in the third place became furious. Taylor passed him at like a few seconds before uh, the finish line, and... Just after the finish line, he kicked Taylor off his bike and started shocking him in the middle of the velodrome. Minutes passed. Nobody moved. And slowly, people started screaming for the track marshal to do their job. But again, no one moved. Some policemen present that day on the track had to intervene and separate our furious racer from Taylor. The public was going crazy and started rushing the track to beat that guy up. So the police had actually to protect the guy trying to choke Taylor, which is again insane. Mm. So during all that time, Taylor is just laying there in the middle of the track unconscious. Taylor spent 15 full minutes motionless on the floor until the police started trying 
to waking up. It's only after five minutes of screaming and slapping that Taylor came back to himself. The racer that almost killed Taylor that day wasn't suspended from racing, but had a fine of $50. Taylor later learned that year that actually other white racers paid for him. Part of the season was in the South and being black at the time and going in the South was mostly not a good idea. So Taylor was constantly refused to enter any race, down to the point of only allowing him to race against the horse on a dirt track on the other side of town. Uh, he did it and he lost, if you want to know. Taylor still won the one-mile sprint at the 1899 World Championship in Canada that year, becoming the first African-American to win a World Championship in cycling. So, as I was explaining before, even if he was now, like, World Cycling Championship, he was still refused at a lot of races, and even more now because he was like a celebrity, right? So not being able to race, people starting forgetting about Taylor and he was no longer in the league for big events. Birdie had to close his factory and get some rest after all the traveling and mental stress of coaching Taylor against a literal army of white dudes wanting to kill him at all four corners of the velodrome. Taylor was now completely alone. Not long after, Taylor met a guy named Liam Brady. Brady was an Irish promoter who knew Taylor was a fan favorite and so someone who could make him a lot of money. At that time, uh, Taylor's mother also died and he became really religious, even refusing to race on Sundays. This no racing on Sundays is going to define literally the rest of his career. Brady got Taylor a trainer and as every other racers, they went south again for the training before the season. So apparently going to the south was where people trained uh, before the season actually started, right? And of course it went terribly wrong. Uh, he and his trainer were kicked off tracks, so they decided to train on local roads. And then the white drivers tried to take him out of the road and he was receiving death threat letters and so on, so they just decided to leave. The season started again and Taylor was winning a lot and Brady got an idea. He would bet 5,000 US dollars, which is like an insane amount of money back then, to anyone who could beat Taylor one to one. And no one showed up. All white racers was like, no, man, I have a thing, or a bike is not ready, or I just don't want to race with a black guy. No one showed up. So Brady had to go to Europe and ask to one of the top riders at the time, Jimmy Michael. Uh, really, really short guy. He was actually quite small, you know, like those small people with a lot of muscles type. Uh, that was like Jimmy Michael. And after a few negotiations, he accepted to race Taylor for a pot of $22,000.
Jimmy lost miserably uh, 20 yards behind Taylor and swore to never race another day. So he didn't take it well at all. From then, uh, Taylor blew up for whatever reason. It, like he could have been a world champion or raced big athletes or whatever. Now he just blew up and track were wide open for him. He got sponsored by cigarette brands and he had the potential to be the most paid American athlete ever. Mm. At the same time, the cycling governing body, uh, the law, was making things more and more difficult for racers. And a little bit before, some of them decided to part out and created a new association for racers. So they needed Taylor in because like he was at the top of his sport, right? And even if it was black, like some people were not okay, but they still needed him. So they promised him to not hold races on Sunday. The first race organized by this new body, the NCA, was in St. Louis in front of 20,000 people, and Taylor was refused at the hotel and had to sleep under a tree. You are world champion, and you need to sleep under a tree. He went to a restaurant the next day, and the manager told the black waiter to not serve Taylor. But since he became such a huge source of inspiration for the entire black community, the waiter argued with his boss, served Taylor anyway, and got fired. The story made the headlines and the press, and the waiter was congratulated for his gesture. One of the final race of the season got rained out and rescheduled on, guess what, on Sunday. Taylor saw the loophole, asked for a solution, got denied it, and... He was like, yeah, I am out of this. And he just took his stuff and went home. So the NCA, the governing body he was part of, that he was one of the, yeah, he was part of it, uh, banned him for abandoning the race and he was fined $500. Yeah. And just like this, the story of, of Major Taylor not being served at the restaurant reminds me of what I read about Muhammad Ali, right? So he's also a black boxer, the, the world champion, etc. And he, he was saying that he was like fighting, like being a boxer for the US at the Olympics, representing the US, the US flag, the people, and he won. And by he, when he went home, he was still not allowed to eat in the same restaurants as the white people. And he also, Muhammad Ali, he was arrested, right, for not um, going to the Vietnam War because he was, he was supposed to, he was drafted and he was supposed to fight in the war. But he said that the Vietnamese people, they never did anything to him. They never called him like the N-word and everything. That's the white yeah. people in the, in the US did. So he's like, I'm not going to fight there for you. They didn't do anything to me. Everything, everything bad that happened to me is because of the racism in the US. And it's, it's fucked up that you can be like the number one cyclist or number one boxer or, or, you, or you can be anyone, right? You don't have to be the best in anything and you still get so much shit just because of being black or or white or asian or whatever and yeah so if if i if i was like major taylor and you're at that point and you still cannot even eat in the same restaurant like how how can you keep going it's crazy yeah yeah again like the willpower of that man is just 
out of this world. Yeah. And yeah, and just to clarify, uh, Taylor couldn't cycle on the race that was rescheduled for Sunday because he's like a devout Baptist Christian. And on Sundays, he don't, he doesn't do anything. Like he's not supposed yeah. to compete or work or anything. So I th they, maybe they knew about that. I'm not sure. It's now 1890 and it's going to be a great year for Taylor and his cycling career. The League of American Wheelmen is no longer in charge anymore and the NCA, who had banned Taylor in the past from competing in their races, has readmitted him to the NCA after paying his $500 fine. And Taylor ended up winning the American Sprint Championship that year. He also beat Tom Cooper, the 1889 NCA champion in a head-to-head -head match in a one-mile race at Madison Square Garden in front of 60,000 people. In addition, Taylor set world records in the half-mile and two-thirds mile sprints. Yeah, so you might ask, but you just said earlier that uh, Taylor was the world champion in 1889, and he was, but that year there were actually two American champions. So one was Taylor from the law and the other one was Tom Cooper from the NCA because it's like, for example, as today, the UCI would exist and an other body would exist and they would both have a world championship. So you end up with two world champions. And that was like super weird time when everything got mixed up and it was hard to track. Yeah, so of course, yeah, very hard to track, especially with like people sometimes not wanting to track him and not accepting everything he does, etc. Right? And in 1901, so the new century, Taylor made his first trip to Europe for cycling, and he won 42 out of 57 races he entered, but not a single final because finals were held on Sundays in Europe, and Taylor who, as mentioned, was a devout Baptist, was not able to compete or work on Sundays, unfortunately. Yeah, and that's actually not completely true. Uh, the French, especially, they moved the finals from Sunday to national French holidays so Taylor could actually take place. Ah. They literally moved the races so one dude could take place. And Europe was so much more welcoming to Taylor. It was completely different from America. A highlight of Taylor's European tour in 1901 were the two match races with French champion Edmund Jacqueline at the Parc des Princes in Paris. Oh my god, I'm butchering the French. But... <laughs> Jacqueline won the first match by two lengths, and Taylor won the second match by four lengths, so they were even. But Taylor also participated in a European tour in 1902, a year later, when he entered 57 races and won 40 of them to defeat the champions of Germany, England, and France. So this, this black American cyclist coming all the way from America to Europe and just starts beating everyone, basically. Champions of Germany, England, and France, which made, which is a pretty big deal. And later on, a year later again, in 1903, during his world tour, Taylor earned prize money estimated at $35,000 at that time. $35,000 at that time is approximately a million dollars today. And he became the wealthiest athlete anywhere in the world. So if you compare 
1903 Taylor who won 35,000 to like 1880 Taylor who was 14 earning six bucks an hour doing tricks out of a shop. You can really see how far he's come just with the bicycle and his sheer will for it, but everything around the bicycle. Taylor continued to race, breaking numerous records and making a bunch of money. And at this point, he had a wife and a daughter named Sydney, named after the place she was born, and he had the title of the fastest man in the world. He retired in 1910 at the age of 32 only. So he retired in 1910 at the age of 32, and if you say that he started racing and working at the age of 13 or 14, 18 years of cycling, non almost non-stop, dodging people trying to kill him, being banned, being readmitted, paying fines, winning games, losing races, etc. That's a long, long 18 years. It was, and you could think that Major had like his fair share of bad vibes and now that he made a bunch of money and he would just retire and have a house in the countryside, his family and a dog. But it actually didn't go that way. Um, after his retirement, Taylor went into various business ventures and he lost a lot of money. And after the Wall Street crash of 1929, uh, he went basically broke. His marriage fell apart and he spent the remaining of his years writing his autobiography, which he self-published and ended up selling door-to-door -door in Chicago. Major Taylor died in June 1932 at the age of 53 from a heart attack. And no one claimed his remains. So he was initially buried at Mount Glenwood Cemetery in Thornton Township, Cook Country, near Chicago, in an unmarked pauper's grave. In 1948, uh, a group of former professional cyclist racers used fans donated by none other than Frank W. Schwinn, so the creator and the owner of Schwinn uh, Cycles, to organize his exhumation and reburial uh, in a better location in the cemetery. Uh, that's really... <laughs> that's sad, man. That, that's not a way you should end up after being like a, a time, a war time breaker and all that stuff. The flake at his grave reads, World champion bicycle racer who came up the hard way without hatred in his heart and honest, courageous, and God-fearing, clean-living, gentlemanly athletes. A credit to his race who always gave out his best. Gone but not forgotten. Yeah. Major Taylor's legacy will go down as his will to stand against racial prejudice as an African-American athlete in a white-dominated sport. Taylor became the role model for others athletes victim of same racial discriminations, and he was the first black celebrity athlete. As he was a pioneer, he had no African-American to offer him advice. And he said, I quote, 
Therefore, I had to blaze my own trail. And man, oh God, I have like, I have the tears coming up because <laughs> holy shit. Yeah, sad ending. I feel like someone must have taken advantage of him once they saw that this guy had so much money trying to get him to buy into a business or something like that. But it's sad when you see like lots of famous people, famous athletes, vulnerable people. They've done great things during their life and then at the end of life, they're just all alone. Something always happens. How can you be such a legend and end up alone from a heart attack? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, like, like I said, like, he was and he is to this day a legend and if not the most famous track cyclist ever and that will ever be. Uh, he's now in, of course, the U.S. Bicyclist Hall of Fame. Yeah. Uh, and yeah and like it's good to remember that like during this entire episode we talked about all the troubles he had with like racial discrimination all the white racers not wanting to race with him trying to kill him trying to knock him off the bike like this this was only like less than 30 years after slavery was abolished in the US and like segregation in the US was only banned in like abolished in 1965 or so with the civil rights movement. So this was right after he like slavery, slavery. Yeah. This was right after slavery was abolished and people were not used to just seeing a black man be free. And yeah, this, despite, despite everything against him, he still came out on top. Like he had like his peak in life was higher than most people would do. would, Oh, fuck. He accomplished more during his life than most people would be able to do. Black, white, Asian, gay, lesbian, whatever. Just incredible what he was able to do. Yeah. I feel like track bikes have that part of history that is really deep, you know? It's a simple sport, but it makes for incredible personalities and events. And... Yeah, he is just like a legend. Uh, I knew of uh, Major Taylor before we started working on that episode, but I've never looked too much into it. And when I did, um, I ha- I am happy I did. <laughs> I hope that podcast, uh, I hope that you enjoyed uh, listening. I know it was like a bit sad and full of negative stuff (laughs) but it is like it is something that you should know it is part of our sport and it is a huge part of our sport even if you only ride picks on the street um major taylor made our sport what it is today yeah well uh, I guess I guess this is it for today's episode. Uh, don't want to end on a sad note. Uh, I am, as I was saying in the pre-show, 
I'm really looking forward for the Olympics. Uh, just watching the races, and I think even if we can't uh, be there in person, it's gonna be great to to see uh, people uh, actually validating all that training they had for the past four years or so, and preparing to to the Olympics. Yeah, I hope no one in the velodrome has a big cardboard sign that says "Ale Opi Opi Omi." Oh God, yeah, <laughs> that bad. Yeah, we'll talk that. We'll talk about that in the after show. Yes, we will. All right, all right. Uh, this is all we have time for today. Uh, everything we discussed today will be in the show notes. So all our references, uh, and yeah, you can. There's books on Major Taylor. There's a lot of stuff, so you can read uh about him more if you want. So every reference we use will be on slowspinsidey.com. You'll also find the suggestion box there where you can tell us what we should talk about in the podcast. Uh, this episode and this theme was voted by our Patreons. So thank you for our Patreons for that amazing topic. Uh, you can find us on our Discord server. The invite link is also in the show notes or on our Instagram. The account is at slowspinsociety. Sharing the podcast with your friends is the easiest way to support the show by giving us a good review on the platform of your choice. If you get value out of the show, why not consider putting value back in, either by supporting us on Apple Podcasts with their new subscriptions program or by visiting patreon.com slash podcast to join the community, where pledging at any level will grant you access to the pre and after show, which is around 40 minutes of extra content per week. We are now at 21, no, 23 Patreons, bringing us really close to our monthly goal, actually, and more privileges for every tier. Thank you so much for your support. We love you guys. Thank you. The music for the show is Loveless Winter by Maria, and the illustration, as always, is by at Julia Joe on Instagram. Yes, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> all right uh we'll see you guys next week in episode 23 with more joy and less sad topics but it was an important one i hope you you guys liked it and we're gonna go on to the after show all right bye guys bye. see you next morning